every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. We're excited to have everybody with us. Uh, my name is Eric Fay. I'm Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri, and uh, joining me is my co-host. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the County Clerk in Boone County, Missouri. And today our guest is John Alt from the Democracy Volunteers, based out of uh, the UK. We're excited to have him today to talk about a number of different things. But John, the first thing we usually like to do on our podcast is ask our guests how they got involved in elections. So if you wouldn't mind kicking us off that way, we'd, we'd love to learn more about you. Well, nice to see you both, literally, but also I hope you're keeping well over there. Um, I got involved in elections uh, in the 1980s, so a long time before you, I suspect, in both cases. And that was actually as a, as a campaigner for a political party. I went through the process of being involved in sort of student politics and those things, those things like lots of people are, um, but eventually ended up uh, in the West Country of England, down in Cornwall, which you might know, the sort of far southwest, uh, running elections down there for a political party. Uh, then got elected and a few other things, but but always was fascinated by the campaign, by the election, by the process, um, and so I decided that actually I was much more interested in the sort of the details, the sort of things that you do, running it, making sure it's, uh, there's integrity in the elections and making sure that uh, we have a high quality democracy in the UK. So we set up Democracy Volunteers sort of in 2016. But before that, I was, in, I was a lecturer at university. I was an academic looking at um, the, how different political parties campaigned, but also how, you know, our, our democracy evolved in the UK from, you know, a long time after yours did, where we actually ended up with elections in the early 20th century, which started to be very similar to yours. And, you know, we're now, we you know, we're a, a well-established democracy, but no elections are perfect. No democracy is perfect. So we set up Democracy Volunteers sort of in the late 2000s sort of teens. Um, and we did that around the National Assembly for Wales elections. You perhaps know that we have devolved elections in the UK. And we went to the Welsh Assembly elections and we had such a an interest and so many concerns about our elections and um, things that you don't perhaps expect to see in a UK election, things like family voting, which I know may not be one of the biggest crimes you see in, the, you know, perhaps more distant elections that people like the OSC and the, perhaps the European Union observe. But we observed elections and thought, well, actually, there are some challenges to UK elections. And that's how it became a thing. And that's how I became Democracy Volunteers Director, because Essentially, we set it up following, you know, a lot of my academic career and thinking, well, actually, this is something that needs doing in the UK. So that's how I got to this point, if that answers your question. Yeah, I think so. And to dig a little deeper, people listening might wonder why on a podcast for really American local election administrators, why are we talking to this English guy? And John, you and I met when your organization was observing uh, elections in the United States Democracy Volunteers, I know, has observed at least a, a couple of different elections in the United States. So I think that might give a little tie into Americans that are like, well, what's going on with this podcast? 
It's a really good point because, I mean, really, we're traditionally a, what's called a domestic election observation group. We, our primary objective is to observe elections within the UK and report back to our authorities, whether it's the UK government, Scottish or Welsh government, or the Electoral Commission within the UK. That's our primary focus. But we also have an awful lot of people who are interested in, in international elections. And one of the things you can tell me, Eric, is that actually elections in America, you don't really have a, a structure of domestic election observation. You have poll watchers. And you're a member of the OSCOD, as we are. Our, you know, our countries are sort of cooperating that to look at elections around those groups of nations. But most of those countries in it, Canada, the United States, France, Italy, Spain, you name it, they don't actually have election observers observing their own countries. Now, people might say, well, you know, our elections are great. Well, there's a conversation there to be had, isn't there? Because, you know, we all know that what's happened over the last few months, and there's been a discussion about the integrity of US elections. So we think it's really both our domestic duty, but also our international duty to help people identify challenges, problems, great things about their elections and feedback to them. Because I, I think one of the things that I will say, I, I remember an interview I was having in Finland, we went to an election there, and the, the obviously Finnish elections are one of some of the best in the world. And the journalist said to me, why on earth are you in Finland? And I said, no, democracy is perfect. Everything can improve. Everything can be helped by external observation. Now, some people think that's interference, but we also think it's, you know, at the end of the day, we're not funded by anybody other than the individuals who are involved. We think it's a civic duty to actually try and, you know, observe the people who are running elections. I mean, I, I don't want to get into too much theory uh, because I'm conscious you actually want your audience to carry on listening. But there's the guy called Plato a long time ago who said, who guards the guardians? And you're the people who run elections, but it's a citizen's responsibility to be engaged with democracy, to actually observe that process. And that's why we encourage people across the UK, but also around the world, to observe their own elections. And that's why we're a member of something called GNDEM, which is the Global Network of Domestic Election Monitors. And we encourage other people to observe their elections as well. Now, not all countries allow it. The United States has a patchwork of, of uh, administration. You know, one state you can do it, like California, in your state you can, but in other states you can't. So it's something where we also try to engage. And, you know, we also try and get ideas off you. You know, when we come to your elections, we see things that we don't do here. And we try and feed that back to our people to try and prove our elections as well. So I think, especially Western democracies that want democracy to continue functioning in the long term, have to engage with the fact that it can't just be preserved in aspic. Nothing is perfect, nothing is permanent. Democracies change and develop, and we have to sort of understand those changes and work with them. I think that's a really, really good point. And with us being so decentralized, we're all administering elections um, at the same time. So we can't go to our neighboring counties all the time, or we can't go to neighboring states and even see what's going on. When you are going to other places and observing things, is that normal too? Is, is there any self-auditing that you've noticed that happens? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that when your election finished in November, you sat down around a table with your colleagues and said, okay, well, 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 and it did go quite so well. Um, and you have a, a reflection on that process. And I don't know any election administrator who isn't more concerned about how their elections run than anyone external because they want to get it right. They want everyone to have the right to vote. They want everyone to have the right to vote in secret. That's one of our main you know, strategies is that people can access their right to vote, use their right to vote and have their vote counted. It's a very simple premise. And how you get to that point is you're right. Lots of election observers 
are actually election administrators from other countries, partly out of interest to see how other people do it. But it's also about how we improve quality. You know, I went to an election in, in the Netherlands a few years ago. They have a, a very simple form of election, which using proportional representation, where they have a ballot paper with every single candidate standing in the country on one ballot paper. Now, you have a lot of elections in the United States for lots of different things all at the same time, but I bet you don't have 397 candidates all standing for the same seat. So you have a ballot paper. I, mean, if you, I know you don't do World Cup soccer over there, but in the UK we have this world chart that you have on your wall. You know, you can see Hungary playing Wales and things like that, yes? And you put your scores on. And their ballot paper is enormous. And I said to them, why don't you use the same system as they do in Finland, where you just mark the number of the candidate you want rather than all the candidates on the ballot? It was like a moment where the scales fell from the eyes and they thought, well, that's a good idea, isn't it? And so even simple administrative things like that, because you're inside the system, it's that candid friend that people need. That sort of, that person, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Actually, this is quite useful advice. We can act on this. We can improve the quality of our elections. And, you know, I mean, I've not actually been to Missouri yet, Eric, but, you know, in two years' time, hopefully we can come for the midterms. We can identify what challenges you have. Now, you know, we spoke to you several times during this election and you were already reflecting on some of the issues that were, were happening and you have incredible security in place. You have chips in ballot boxes to make sure you know where they are. Something that we don't see in the UK, but something that we might recommend in the future. So I think you have one. I think, Brianna, you basically said a really good question is... I think administrators reflect all the time on elections, but the point is legislation also needs to follow that. And you also need to have your, you know, the people in charge of elections and legislating for them, understanding that they're a developing process. I really like that perspective and the, the outlook that we're always looking for improvement. It's easy to fall prey, I think, to, well, everything's going okay because the outcome is all right. As long as nothing catastrophic happens, then we must be doing fine. But that's not really the case. We can always be doing better. Well, I, I, can, I, can I come back on you? Because I think that, that's spot on as well, is that actually, I think there's a lot of pressure on election administrators. I mean, we, we saw that um, from externally during the November election, is that actually, I think I would just like to say, I mean, as somebody who observes American elections, I have no dog in the fight, really. I think the time and the energy and the the sheer endurance that election administrators show in the United States is, is phenomenal. I think the work you do um, is second to none I've seen around the world, that the, the, the professionalism, the, the enthusiasm, the, the enthusiasm even in difficult times is impressive. Uh, and I think the fact that you have some of election administrators standing up to challenging behaviour from higher up the system, I think is also indication that actually the structure is sound. Um, and I think it's very difficult in circumstances where there's lots of external pressure to reflect deeply, especially if you've got another election, as you've just been saying to me before we started talking, elections happening in April. You're, you're, it's almost a state of permanent election you're in. Um, and actually, perhaps, you know, that, that thinking time, which everyone needs as an academic, um, I think thinking time is one of the things that is really essential. Um, you get to reflect on what you do and try and improve things. But that's actually what observers are also for, is to do the reflecting for you. Because, you know, we know all sorts of systems and all sorts of ideas. You know, I think every state in the United States should really embrace election observation. Um, I think it would really help improve elections. But we are where we are. And, you know, you have quite an interesting patchwork of legislation across the states, which make that at the moment not possible. I think that's a really interesting point, John. I think it's 
fascinating that at least in Missouri, and it might be this way in some other states, you as a citizen of the United Kingdom can come to Missouri and have a right under our state election law to go into a polling station and observe the vote. But unless domestically here, you are an observer or a poll challenger appointed by a political party, you have no right as a citizen of Missouri to go into a polling place and see anything. But that goes back to your one of your first points that there is really not a culture of domestic citizen election observation in the United States. I, I just think that's fascinating. You know, I mean, we, we are pretty much the only, there's one in Austria, but we're literally the only one in Western Europe who do this. Um, because this, I mean, to go into more theory, um, there was something called the Copenhagen Agreement, which, set up, which was written in 1990, which for the US, the UK, all the countries of NATO and all the former Warsaw Pact countries all signed to say that they would allow domestic election and international election observation. Now, some people have done that, you know, but some people haven't done that. Um, and the problem is the OSCE, which is the body which is technically responsible for observing US elections, I mean, especially in 2020, can't send enormous amounts of people. They might send two people to, to Missouri. Well, it's a pretty big place, isn't it? You know, it's not something that two people can, can get much of a handle on. So actually, you'd need thousands of on-the-ground observers if you were to do the job that they try and do in the Ukraines and the Kazakhstans and the Russias when they have elections. And no one's saying elections in the US or anything like those. But the whole purpose of elections is they have to improve. They can't just stand still. And actually just looking for things like family voting. I would say one in three polling stations I see family voting in, even in the UK. I see one in a hundred, now I know your ballot boxes are different from ours, but about one in a hundred ballot boxes in the UK were unsealed at the last general election. I was in a polling station in Belgium a few years ago during the European elections for the European Parliament. And I was with the, one of the heads of the Electoral Commission from South Africa. And every single ballot box in this polling station was unsealed in Belgium. And I said to him, I said, what would you, what would people say if I went to a South African polling station, every ballot box was unsealed? They said, well, you say it was corrupt, wouldn't you? And I said, and that's the problem. We, and you as the United States, are often very keen to export democracy. And I think we have to be conscious that when we export it, we need to export high quality democracy and also do what we say at home as well. Um, so ours need to be the Rolls-Royce. That's a, some of you don't know what those are anymore, Rolls-Royces, but the Rolls-Royce of elections. Not the old jalopy, I think you'd say, but, um, you know, we need the Rolls-Royce of elections in the West to make sure that the people live up to them. Yeah, we, we prefer to call it the Cadillac of elections. That's Yes, yeah, so they're too big and too, you know, too noisy. Okay, we've got very narrow roads in the UK compared to you. <laughs> so backing up a little bit, John, would you mind explaining the scope of Democracy Volunteers observation, I, I think you said in 2018, also in, in 2020, I know it was virtual in 2020. What did you see? We're keen to know what your observations were. Well, in 2020, we uh, had about 60 or so observers. Obviously, we did the entire process remotely for the US elections. We didn't deploy anyone on the grounds for the obvious reasons of the pandemic. And I think we, we developed new and interesting ways of actually observing the election. If you look at what we did, we essentially said, OK, there are about 30 states or so that allow, as Missouri does, um, election observers. So we contacted those states and said, we've got team of two, and they engaged with administrators in that area. So that's the first stage. We also then said, OK, what else can we do? Because we can't do in-person observation, we can't physically go to polling stations. Can we engage in the process which allows us, as you did, some sort of virtual access to polling? 
whether that's literally a camera being taken in so we can observe what's happening or whether that's the counting process that we can normally do in person. So we, we in some states, those were, they were broadcast. You could you know, find a link on the internet and follow an Arizona counting or Oregon County or whatever it was. You could do that in quite a lot of states. So we did that sort of traditional aspect, but virtually. But then we also thought, what else can we do? Because actually, you know, that sounds like not much effort. So, you know, we could do that fairly quickly. So we did, we also did an audit of election law across the United States. So we looked at all 50 states plus DC, but also the territories as well. We looked at the Guam and the, you know, the other territories that the states has as well to look at how the legislation exists. As I said earlier, something of a patchwork of, of legislation ranging from different exclusions, different access requirements, different ID requirements, all sorts of things which I think the average external observer would not expect. There's a presumption, especially in the UK, that essentially you have one sort of body of election law. There might be slight changes in Scotland and Wales because they've the devolution, but actually the vast majority of election law is centralised. Once you get your head around the fact that each state is responsible for its own law, you have to sort of like break down your observations to those areas. So we then also thought, okay, what are the big discussions in the US at the moment? And they were social media and the bias of the media. So we did an audit of the media to look at if what they're putting out is actually favouring one side or the other. And that's something we'll be reporting on very soon. And the other one was social media. Now, we all hear the sort of, you know, the, the chaos and the, the noise around social media. We looked at certain things that people were talking about. Now, we, we know that there was a debate and discussion about uh, the legitimacy of uh, mail-in ballots in the US before the election. So we looked at the negative and positive aspects of that and whether people thought it was biased, bad, good, or whatever. And we will also be reporting that very soon as well. Now, we also did a, an opinion poll of voters across the United States to see how and whether they trust the system. Because I think one of the things that's interesting about electoral integrity is, is you can run the best election in the world. In fact, you pretty much do. But if the public don't have trust in it, actually it's almost not materially important whether it's good or bad now we did a poll and basically the evidence was that people did trust states but they also really trusted people like you running it on the local level so actually that was something really positive come out actually the local people they sort of know and they engage with on a regular basis they trusted so that was the sort of the, the view of what we did now the problem is obviously because of the pandemic, you are extremely restricted in the things you can do. But there is a sort of, you know, a capacity to do even more virtually than we used to on the ground. Personally, I think it doesn't make up for that in-person understanding because building relationships with people and actually them trusting you and them saying, well, actually, we've had a problem with this is a key part of election observation. So I personally would say that election observation still needs to be in person, but... I think it was an interesting development in how we can change the way we do our normal job. And to answer your question more directly, I think what was fascinating about it was that all the noise about the election in the United States was pretty much that until after the election. I think actually people did generally say that they trusted the process. But one of the questions we did ask in our poll was, would you trust the election if the result wasn't clear two weeks after the election. It's one of the things that we predicted three or four weeks before. And I remember thinking, well, at what point do they stop having faith in the process? And in the UK, you pretty much have the result within 24 hours. 
you know, and you can physically see the bits of paper counted, because you have a slightly more, you know, long, elongated process, it is much more possible to delay that process and make it more open to question. One of the things that we actually thought was interesting, we did see, look, watching the Arizona counting and things like that, you can see the, the members of parties observing what's going on. And they're called observers, but of course they're not observers. They're people who have a dog in the fight. And so actually that's one thing we would recommend is that one of the fundamentals of your system, that you have this sort of like mutual distrust of parties running elections and taking it out of that political sphere might give it greater credibility. So to answer your question, I think your elections are really, really good. <laughs> you know, they are astonishingly good and well administered. But trust is where actually is something that technology and things might be eroding trust. Because I'm sitting in the UK where we still use bits of paper and pencil. And you might think, well, that's Victorian. In fact, that's exactly what it is. It's Victorian. But people know it works because no one can hack into a piece of paper and a pencil. There's a great deal of trust in UK elections, which I find interesting because we've had some challenges ourselves recently and people questioning the quality of our elections, but not to the extent that we've seen in the US over the last few weeks and months. So I think you should be thinking, okay, how do we try and create more faith in this process? And that might be being clearer how it works. Because as I said before, you know, your enfranchisement, who can vote, is really important. The fact they can vote in secret, you've got those two bits pretty much pat. It's that clarity that vote is being counted and counted correctly was where the debate became post-election. But what's interesting about the situation you've got is that people distrust an election which is pretty much one of the best in the world. That is quite a difficult position to work out of because you've got to try and analyse how do we improve this where people think this works, we have faith in it, I don't care if it takes a month until they're finished counting. I know it's right. You mentioned that paper ballots are the standard there, but earlier you also said some of the ballot boxes are unsealed. You know, that's always the pushback that I see when people start talking about technology and they go, hey, we've been throwing ballot boxes in the river for years. There are still things that can go wrong, but it's almost like that's a risk that people are willing to take at this point because they don't know what's going on with the technology. I, I think the problem is, is that trust factor. Now, you know, I've been to, I went to one of the, the last elections we went to was the Irish general election in February 2020. Um, and they use a single transferable vote system, which I'm sure, you know, your, your, your listeners and you both know is not the simplest thing to count. And they do it all on paper. And it's possibly one of the most amazing bits of paper counting I've ever seen in my life. It, it must take a PhD in, in just maths to be able to understand it. But um, it's because there's a population of about 3 million voters in Ireland. Um, and it's not as big a job. Basically, I mean, that's, you know, what's the population of Missouri? I bet you're not far off being Ireland. So, you know, I think it's one of the things you have to bear in mind. It's just because things are done at a much more local level. What's the population of St. Louis County? It's over a million, isn't it, Eric? That's the population of Northern Ireland. And you've got, I don't know how many members of staff you have, but there are probably hundreds of members of staff in Northern Ireland conducting elections in some form or another. Um, so things are much more localised in the UK. It's that, it's that broken down to very small levels. And if we have a general election where 30 million people vote with 650 constituencies, the units of activity are much smaller and much more compact for people to be able to count. So I think you've got to look at the different economies of scale and also how those 
work in your context. Um, and, and that's why our system is still paper-based really, because it, it's done at the local library or the local school or, you know, it's, I know yours are too, but actually there's no one a thousand bits of paper in that ballot box. So it's much easier to count. Um, and you're counting no more than 30 or 40,000 votes and it can be done overnight by hundred people. It's, it's, but the point is how many people would you need to be able to count that? It would be cast of tens of thousands, wouldn't it? So that's the reason they sort of economies of scale that allow us to be able to do it, but also you are excluded from doing it really. In our elections are pretty much every 12 months. Um, you know, they're not as regular as yours and they're not every single seat for every single thing, not every couple of years. So, yeah, I mean, for example, the Netherlands did in, in start using electronic voting about 20 years ago um, until I think a few students at Leiden University, which I admit is the best university in the Netherlands, hacked into their system and proved that it could easily be corrupted. So they abandoned it. And and I think I think there is just a tradition of paper and pencil, which I know, which I don't think is perfect, because you're right, ballot boxes are unsealed. But just because a ballot box is unsealed, although I personally think it's an unacceptable situation, does not suggest anyone's put their hand in it to check or to mess with it. Because, I mean, don't forget in the UK, I mean, there is no requirement to show ID to vote at all. You can turn up a polling station and say, hello, I'm John Alt, I live at my address, I tell the address, and I get my ballot paper. It's based in astonishing levels of trust, the UK election. In fact, the OSCE has said that they would never recommend our system of elections to anybody else. But it seems to work because people trust it. You know, technology is very important in elections, especially things like, you know, voter registration and keeping your electoral roll up to date. I think it's essential these days. But actually, when it comes down to the actual act of voting, bits of paper in those cases do, you know, allow people to see the evidence of what's happened. That actually makes people distrust elections because it's, you know, the Internet is a place where lots of people come up with ideas, isn't it? But that's where, you know, I think there is a discussion to be had. Now, I think you, you know, use technology amazingly. Some of the things, you know, I remember Eric showing me on election day, this map of where all these ballot boxes were with a little, little dot on the map. And I was thinking, wow, have we had that. You know, I've sat at counts before now in the UK at 10 o'clock at night, waiting for the votes to arrive, wondering where someone had gone at, you know, midnight because one ballot box hadn't arrived. And someone had got home for his dinner. He'd forgotten to bring it and it was left in the back of the car. Now, it came and everyone trusted it, but... That's not perfect. And that's the problem with people is they're not infallible. And no election is infallible. But I think technology is one of the things that I think some people, especially, you know, let's be honest, people getting old like me, have less trust in. Younger people, you know, understand it better. So I think that's one of the, the, the distancing factors in elections is that people, they become more remote from the average person's understanding. And, and that's something that's, you know, I don't necessarily even have an opinion. I just think it's something that needs discussions. I assume at some point, and to be honest, I apologize, I don't know this, you may have already issued some kind of report about your, your observation. If it hasn't already come out, uh, when do you expect it to come out and where can people find it? I've got to be diplomatic now. Um, the answer is it was written a few weeks ago, ready to go early February. and. We were all prepared to polish it, finish it, print a couple of copies that two people might read and put it on the internet as well. But for the first time ever, we've had to write a section on election-related violence, which we didn't expect to have to do. And so we've had, a, you know, we've had to rewrite certain aspects of it so that we can reflect uh, the ongoing situation up until the inauguration. Because 
one of the reasons we didn't release it was we, we you know, the election isn't really finished until the Electoral College has been approved and the Senate and the House of Representatives have agreed it and so on. So the election is not really finished, is it, until very close to the inauguration. So we were never going to do it before that. But as things happened sort of a week before inauguration, which were challenging, we think about those people who were affected by it. And, you know, obviously it's something which was astonishing for most other people around the world, um, that the, the world's oldest and greatest democracy had those events. It's something that we have to reflect in our work because I, I might expect to see election violence in other countries. Uh, I was not expecting to see it in the United States. And it's something that I think uh, we all have to reflect on is that if people are so disenchanted with the electoral process that they feel that is a, a way to resolve their um, anxieties, then we have to look at that, reflect on it and try and evaluate what the problem was. Now, that means that we put our uh, date back for release for about by about a month. So it'll be about four or five weeks from now we'll release it. And hopefully it will be useful to legislators and administrators like yourselves, but also just for a wider public to know that actually independent election observation really is an integral part of the process, that, that people can have faith in elections because people are watching the process. I'm doing it from a position which is unbiased. I'm very proud to be a non-partisan election observer because I think it's an essential part of our civic societies that people do engage in democracy and don't just think it's something they do every now and again. Actually, I think democracy is, is hard work. You've got to fight for it, not in the way that other people have said so. You know, you've got to actually stand up and be involved, whether that's voting, observing, helping on polling day, you know, taking your grandmother to the polling station in the car. That's what democracy requires. And we've got to be proud of that and understand that our report, although a small part of that, hopefully helps people like you to think, OK, we might do that next time. We don't expect revolution, um, but we can hope for evolution and hopefully administrators improve things based on what we recommend. So, yeah, in the next few weeks, you'll get our report and, you know, we'll be sending you a personal copy, Eric, as someone who very kindly let us into polling stations virtually. And we will hopefully have an impact. And that's what we do. And we do it all for free, even more surprisingly. <laughs> we do this as a civic duty, which I think is uh, proof that we aren't paid for or bought by anybody. We do it because this is what we believe. Do you want to mention what's next on the docket for democracy volunteers? So what, what's upcoming? I wouldn't say that's a million dollar question because we don't have a budget that large, but um, we have elections in the UK well, in Great Britain, there are no elections in Northern Ireland this year, but we have parliamentary elections, the Scottish and Welsh parliaments on May the 6th, plans to be on May the 6th, and they'll be voting by the additional member system. So very interesting for the external people to see that voting process. Um, in England, we have local elections in the main metropolises. So London has a mayoral election. Manchester, Liverpool have mayoral elections, but also other council elections as well. So that's on May the 6th. And we expect that to go ahead based on the present situation with the pandemic. And then hopefully later in the year, when, when you know, we're allowed to get on aeroplanes again and things like that, we might be able to go to some elections around Europe. We were hoping to go to the Netherlands in March, but that seems very improbable at the moment. There will be elections around uh, in Finland in April, and there will be elections in Norway and Germany in September. So we'd hope to be able to go to some of those if the world gets back to a sense of some normality by then. But you know, hopefully uh, we should just keep praying for that because um, I think we all want to get some normality again before too long. 
Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. Thank you especially to John All, our guest today. And join us next time for our next awesome episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. Cheerio.